Well, well, well. Welcome back to season two of My Life with David Cassidy. This is Carol Kaplan, and this is being recorded in March 2022. So a bit of time has passed since season one, and I think for a lot of reasons, I hesitated to continue. There was a two-year pandemic in the middle there. I continue doing a bit of recording, put some episodes in the can, but decided not to air any until now. And one has been weighing on my mind for quite a while. It's an interview that I did with someone who had never been recorded before. Her name is Meryl Tans. And Meryl Tans is a bit of a mystery where it comes to David Cassidy. Meryl was David's second wife. They met for the first time in the 70s and re-met again in the early 80s. And that was when they began a relationship, they got married and eventually got divorced a couple of years later. They did not have any children together. Meryl had a child from a previous marriage, a little girl named Caroline, who was about eight years old at the time. But I, I want to give you a little background as to how this interview came about. And, and I ask you to bear with me a little bit because you need the context to try to understand this interview, which, by the way, is going to come out in two parts because it's lengthy. But it's also very important to a period of David's life that has seemed like a black hole for many, not really knowing what, what happened to David in the 80s. Where was he? What was he doing? We know some of the things that he was doing, but I think he, by his own admission, admits that in some ways he sort of fell out of the height of his, his career. Anyway, when David died in November 2017, I was so impacted in a way that shocked even me. As I told you at the beginning of season one, I, after 1974, never really thought much about David Cassidy, lost track of his career. And of course, through all those years when there was no internet, it was very difficult to keep up with what a favorite entertainer was doing. And I think it wasn't until he came back into my consciousness because he hit the news in the 2010s when he had a couple of DUI arrests and then he passed away in 2017. And that hit me so hard in a way that surprised even me. And I kept asking myself, why is this bothering me so much? I didn't know this person. But I think what it came down to, in a nutshell, is that realizing that David got old made me realize that I had gotten old. And this entire lifetime had passed between when I was a little girl and watching the Partridge family in 1974 and all of a sudden now to 2017, all this life had passed by me and I guess I was just hit with my own mortality. And I imagined that there had to be millions of other women that were feeling the same way as me. And yet I wasn't seeing anything about it in the media. There was the news coverage that he died, that he had an alcoholism problem, and that he had organ failure and ultimately died. 
And I'm a journalist, so I wrote an article that was published in the Huffington Post about how his death impacted me and why I felt that he was important to American culture. And apparently it hit a nerve because the article went viral through social media, completely unknown to me, because there were all these fan groups on Facebook that I never even knew about. And the next thing I know, I get an email from a name that is vaguely familiar, but I can't quite place it. And I open it up and it says, Carol, I wanted to thank you for the beautiful article that you wrote about David Cassidy. So much of the media attention has been sort of negative and focusing on the misfortune in his life instead of all the happiness that he brought to people and all of his artistic successes. And I just want you to know that it means a lot to the family that you wrote this. Signed, Meryl Tans. Thinking, who is Meryl Tans? Oh my goodness, that was one of David's wives. That was his second wife. And so I reached out to her. We started writing. I said, is there, you know, I would love to have lunch with you. And she says, oh, we could, we'll do better than that. She says, why don't you come on up to my lavender farm where I used to keep the horses that David and I loved so much. I'll show you around and we'll have a nice day of it. So I was thrilled. And so I flew out to L.A. and we we drove from L.A. up into the Santa Ynez Valley, which, by the way, is not too far from where Michael Jackson's Neverland estate is located. And she comes out to meet me and uh, we give each other a big hug. And it, it was surreal. We go out to lunch. And then after a while, she says to me, is this an interview? And I said, why do you want it to be an interview? And she said, well, you know, I have always wanted to be interviewed because I feel that I really have a story to tell and nobody's ever asked me. I finally came to the conclusion that the only person that could do this was me because it's not like information about David Cassidy or his ex-wives was anything that the mainstream media was going to be fighting over. So I said, I can do this. And uh, so that's how I got to start this podcast. Now, I've held this interview for a couple of years because Meryl had second thoughts about it. Uh, Because in part two, she reveals something about David that's never been publicly disclosed. Now, don't go ahead and rush to part two because you need the setup here. You need context. So I'm asking you to stick with me through part one first. Also, Meryl told me she had three unreleased songs of David. She had these tapes that were hidden in the back of a drawer and had been sitting there for 35 years. And I said, Meryl, those must be preserved and they must be transferred to digital. And she didn't know 
what I was talking about. So I had to explain to her that it had to be taken to an audio recording studio where professional engineers could enhance the recording and make it in digital form so that it would not disintegrate as a cassette tape would. Meryl said that she wanted me to release them in this podcast as her gift to the fans. These songs were recorded in a a Nashville studio. She paid for the studio time so David could have demo tapes that he could send to producers. And after we had gone through this arrangement to be released on this podcast, she suddenly decided to release them to someone else, much to my shock and disappointment. So that's another reason why I delayed the release of this interview. But I want to give you a little bit of a setup so that you have some context going into this interview. Merrill was married to one of the wealthiest men in Canada, Mark Tans who helped her get into horse racing. He bought her a farm in California where she could raise thoroughbreds. And it's through that thoroughbred business that she met David for the first time at a horse sale in Kentucky. Uh, A bit after that, she divorced Mr. Tans before she met David a second time in Chicago. And you'll hear her talk about that. Now, at this point in her life, she has at least two residences. The, The horse farm located in Los Olivos, California, maybe an hour from Santa Barbara, which later became a lavender farm, and another home close to Los Angeles, where she was raising her daughter. So that should give you the background that you need to know to understand what she's talking about. So now, for the first time ever, David Cassidy's second wife, Meryl Tans. Why have you decided to do this interview? I think that as I have reflected upon David's life and his legacy, that I would like to uh, speak out and talk about the David that I knew, because I think during his life, David was many Davids to many people. As his life, as he got older, he he changed and wasn't as lighthearted a man as he was when he was younger. And but I'd, I don't know how many people really knew the David I knew, who was uh, silly and smart and wise and cunning and uh, extremely funny person who did wonderful mimics of anyone he ever spoke to, and he'd have us on the floor half the time laughing. When did you first meet? I met David in 1974 in Lexington, Kentucky, where we both were involved in the thoroughbred horse business. And we just so happened to be connected to the same farm that kept our horses. And we happened to be at a yearling sale at Keeneland. And I met him there at Keeneland Racetrack. So he was 24 and 
you're a couple years older than him, is that right? I was 27, I believe, at the time. And I'm three years older than him. And let's go back and just so that we can understand who you are. I mean, everybody can tell that you have a bit of an accent. Where are you from and how did you get here? I was born to British Irish parents in Cape Town, South Africa, and educated there. And after I began modeling as a late teenager and did quite well, and um, one has to quickly explain that when you are born in an outpost, all the records and music and magazines and everything came from somewhere else. So from as a child, I always wanted to travel and this modeling falling into my lap. I was very fortunate and got lots of work. And therefore, I had the finances to get on a ship and come to Canada and I first immigrated and, and lived in Toronto and then moved to the United States in 1972. Okay. So in just a little detail, when, when you were in Toronto, you met and married Mark Tans. I certainly did. I married Mark Tans, who I had a beautiful daughter with called Caroline, and we came to the United States together. We immigrated together, and we moved to a place uh, which I love called La Costa in North San Diego County, and we lived there for a number of years, and then we moved to Bel Air, California, and all the time, my husband was developing shopping centers and building shopping centers. And I was luckily, I loved horses from a, a child. And I was able to get involved with Lester Salco, who was a, a producer. He produced the show Ironside and many others. And he and I got into buying some inexpensive racehorses. And we we were very lucky and we, lo- we won a lot of races. And at this point of time, my husband looked at this and he was excited because here was a venture he knew nothing about and he met all kinds of interesting people Lots of extremely fascinating people are in the thoroughbred racing industry. And uh, there was also a chance for a profit. And I emphasize a chance for a profit. (laughs) And we, so we went to Kentucky and uh, we purchased several hundred thousand dollars worth of young horses and uh, one from David. And from that, the original meeting. That was our meeting, yes. Did you stay in touch with him? He called irregularly, maybe once or twice a year, maybe a little more. And he would ask about the filly, which I had purchased. And had she begun her racing career? She had not. She was extremely tall. 
And I tried to give my horses all the time they needed before they went into competition. And I knew I was driving him crazy because he wanted this filly to run. And so he would call me and nag me about when she was going to run. And I would think of another excuse. But (laughs) we developed a friendship. He would call me from the road you know, he was in a play, he was doing something, and uh, he he was extremely knowledgeable about horses, he loved them, and I had had a, a long time myself to study pedigrees. It was a passion that we shared that was almost took over us when we talked. And and I would look down at the clock and we had been on the phone for two hours. So when you first met him, did, did you know who he was? I was told who he was by the uh, family in Kentucky that introduced us. But I had lived overseas. I had lived in Nassau in the Bahamas and in Canada, and I did not know what the Partridge family was. And uh, David enjoyed that. He enjoyed that he knew somebody who uh, he could talk to that was not a fan and that uh, was strictly interested in what he was interested in. So he never had to explain to me what he was doing. He was doing his job so that he could afford to own racehorses and come to the racetrack. So what did you think of him when you first met? Well, he, he had an entourage, even at Keeneland. And they were obviously not horse people. They were people in the business, uh, music business, I guess. He was very flighty and guarded and, and aware of people staring at him. And I thought somewhat uncomfortable and realized that, you know, here was a person just trying to indulge his passion and wished people would look at the horses and not at him. But I don't think he realized how absolutely beautiful he was. And of course, you know, he made the shag haircut famous. And here he was, you know, throwing his head around and this gorgeous <laughs> hair would flop back and forwards. And and he just He couldn't relax and really look at the horses. And that's why they came to me privately and asked me if I would buy one because he couldn't really stay at the at uh, Keeneland because the crowds were interfering with the business of selling horses. So at some point, years go by and your marriage to Mark Tans ends and you and David crossed paths again. Where and when did that happen? It happened in the fall of 1981, and it happened in Chicago at the, a race called the Arlington Million. 
which was a million dollar race. And I was there and he was there with friends. And neither of us had a date. And he had tickets. Wait, did you say David Cassidy didn't have a date? No. How does that happen? I think he wanted to indulge his passion for horses that weekend, and he was terribly excited. He was, he, it was like he ha- had a horse in every race. I believe he gave a trophy to one winning owner during the day, but he was there to to watch the horses and to pick the winners and put a few dollars on. Uh, uh, a horse to see if he if his gambling would work or his idea of whom he thought should win would win. We didn't know each other very well, except for the very well guarded secret of of uh, telephone calls regarding horses, and uh, I might add nothing else but horses. Mm-hmm. And so he. He asked me to dance, and there were about 500 people more at this gala, and uh, everyone was beautifully dressed in beautiful uh, gowns, and uh, he was in black tie, and he just, you know, he looked so amazing, and uh, I can still see him now. And he asked me to dance, and he started to sing what the band was playing. And I was transfixed because he had this incredible voice. And I asked him at that point, I said, why aren't you recording? And he said, I'm really tired of it. And I said... I think this is a a little too profound, but I did say it. I said, you can't be let uh, God give you a talent like this and then not use it. And we were in love by the end of the night. And we were, after that, never separated except when he had to work. And then mostly I went with him. I had a home in Brentwood in LA, California, and he moved in there with me. And he, once he saw my farm, Claremont Farm, and he came up here and he was able to walk amongst the paddocks, and I was very proud of this farm, and still am, and he walked among the horses, and his entire uh, persona changed, and he was totally relaxed, and he just went into the paddocks and put his arms around the horses, whether they were young or old, and and he just hung on them and talked to them and loved on them. And his eyes were just, he was very, very, very happy. And he said to me, what are you doing living in Bel Air 
or Brentwood at the time, and and uh, coming up here on brief weekends. This is paradise, and uh, would you consider moving up here? And I I said no because I wouldn't be near the racetrack, and and we uh, we went back and forth and back and forth and it didn't take too long the person he had to convince the most was my daughter and so we we packed our bags and we moved up here and put her into a school and at that point of time it was a daily routine to be up by 6am or before and go and work alongside the people who worked at the farm with the horses and to spend the day with the horses. And he wanted that to be the rest of his life. He didn't, he didn't want to do anything else. And he was, he was extremely happy. And the phone would ring and he would say, that was MGM or that was so-and-so, and they want me to come to L.A. And at that point of time, we had a small airport, and he would go for an interview, and he would come back, and he would say, didn't get the job. And I wasn't quite sure if that was true, but he had, he had really no rush to run back to Hollywood, so to speak. I mean, where where was his mind at this point? Because this is the early 1980s and the Partridge family was done. He had earned, I heard at the height of his career, he had amassed about $8 million in earnings, which in the early 1970s was a huge sum of money. He was the highest paid entertainer at the time. But then... He went through some rough times in the late 70s. He had married actress Kay Lenz. That marriage ended. And so when he met you, was he still married to Kay Lenz? Were legally separated and being divorced. And unfortunately, the monies were not there anymore. And they were having to sell their homes and their properties. And he was in a place where he didn't like to talk about it, but he had made some bad investments. He had bought shopping center. He had bought some land in Hawaii, in Lahaina. And he had bought some horses that he'd lost an awful lot of money on. And basically, to be completely truthful, he needed help, financial help. What what do you mean? Like someone to advise him? Well, he was at the place where he couldn't afford to pay the board bills for his horses. And uh, I don't think he could come to grips with it because David uh, was a very trusting person. And he had managers, and he said the sentence that I just hate, and it's, I don't deal with money, I'm an artist. Uh. And of course, that 
leads to bad things. And so as long as he could write a check or use a credit card and it worked, he never really sat down and had very serious business meetings. David and money did not agree. He made it and he made millions and millions of dollars through his life. And I watched him over the last 25 years. He made millions in Las Vegas in the 90s. Not one cent of that is left. So wasted. he wasted money. Well, and yeah, also, I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but he, he, he didn't have such good advice at times. How did this impact your life with him, this financial predicament that he was in? Well, it, it took me aback a lot because... The persona he had, when you discover that when you're a celebrity and you show up at the races, I bought my ticket. He was given his ticket. Yes. Celebrities have a lot of perks. And he was basically, he would do a a small part on a television show like he did a small part on Fantasy Island and a couple of other shows while we were together. And um, he would get paid a substantial amount of money for it. And he would also have royalties coming in from the Partridge family. So he could make his life look comfortable. And he, he, he could play the role of it but it was very uncomfortable to him. And so at that time, we finally sat down and, and talked about the fact that, that in order for us to you know, be man and wife and to, to live on and to have the things that we both wanted, which was to have a, a small broodmare band bred to the finest stallions we could afford, and to be able to, you know, own a home and uh, all these things, he needed to work. And he took this very seriously. And uh, at that time, this we were coming towards the end of 1982. And he was offered uh, a job in New York. He had to go and audition for it against Donny Osmond and a lot of other young men at that time, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Yes. And so he, we, we were sent the, the script, script and we were sent the songs and he learned two or three songs very easily. It was just a natural. He sat at the piano and he used a few fingers because he didn't consider himself a pianist. And he belted it out, and within a week or so, he knew the entire score. And then he got on the plane, and he got on stage, and Susan Rose and Zev Buffman were, and of course, Andrew Lloyd Webber, 
were the producers and they were sitting in the chairs looking up at him and they asked him which songs he would like to sing and he sang three of the songs and he I think he did a little bit of tap dancing and uh, he was hired that day and he replaced Andy Gibb and they gave him less than a week to work with the understudy and before you knew it, they changed the uh, the tarp to read David Cassidy and not Andy Gibb. And there he was, a star on Broadway. And we had just settled in to a life on the farm. And he said he had to sign a nine-month contract. And he he, of course, signed it and then said to me, I can't and don't want to be here without you. And at that point of time, my daughter had just moved from L.A. from a very good school down there to another very good school. And thank goodness I had very trustworthy housekeepers and family about. And uh, I spent the next nine months Every two weeks, two and a half weeks on a plane, two and a half weeks in New York, and then I would fly back to the Santianes Valley to Los Olivas to be with my daughter Caroline and to see how the horses were running and or fly to Kentucky and sort of be the eyes and ears of what we were trying to set up. And for David to have to be on stage all the time, they would arrange when one of our horses were running, they would, the Hollywood Park or Santa Anita would get a special TV and put it into a room and allow him a closed racing that no one else but he and the stewards could see because there wasn't, there was no, you know, television racing in those days, except for the big races. So he couldn't turn on the television and watch his horse run at Hollywood Park. But they were Marge Everett, the owner of Hollywood Park. I explained to her our predicament and she said, oh, sure, I'll just put in another line and David can watch his horses run. Mm-hmm. So ra- racing was immensely kind to him. So you helped him financially. I, I want to set the record straight here. Yes, to the tune of millions of dollars. And this was to pay off some debt? Yes, and to also help underwrite our his venture, our venture, into England to live there, to write there, to recreate the, the David who was a solo performer without the Partridge family, and whom I might add in England is a solo performer, even though the Partridge family was released there. The, David was never stigmatized as a sitcom actor who happened to be able to sing. In, in uh, England and in Europe, David was considered up there with Wham, George Michael, Elton John. He was a superstar. And he was friends with all those people, right? 
very good friends. Uh, uh-huh. they, they exactly. I've seen pictures of him with Elton John, but when people barely knew who Elton John was, right. and also with George Michael. George Michael was uh, one of the reasons David was invited by Morrison Leahy Music to come to England is that they managed George Michael, and George Michael did not know how to act like a superstar. He didn't know how to act like a rock star. He didn't know how to act like a rock idol. He was absolutely terrified. And and so he and David spent a lot of time together. And, and you know, David would explain to him just to, you know, be yourself, be yourself all the time and try to just enjoy that, they these people love the music and you're the one carrying the music to them and not to take the crazy fans who broke through your door as any more seriously than the people that wrote you know unkind things about you because if there was one thing that David had that I so admired and still admire very very much is he told me I don't care what they think I'm going to live my life the way I want to and so if you're going to be upset about you know people saying or doing things to hurt you or harm you 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 are never going to have a happy life and he taught that to George. And George fought Sony years later and won, and won the rights back to his music that Sony had taken away. And David was part of that, that it helped him to stand up and be George Michael. Because it is very difficult for we see a movie star and we see their beauty and we see their poise and we don't know that they're shaking inside. So let's take a break here and in part two you'll hear more about Merrill's marriage to David, how it started to come apart, and an incident that's never been publicly spoken of. So stay tuned, and we'll see you next time on My Life with David Cassidy. This is Carol Kaplan. I want to die, cause you know I want to stay.